interviewing the leading private equity executives and unlocking the secrets of success. Welcome to the Private Equity Podcast with Alex Rawlings. Hello and welcome back to the Raw Selection Private Equity Podcast, interviewing the leading private equity executives and unlocking their secrets to success. Joining us today is Todd Sipperman, the Managing Principal at Sipperman Compliance Services, servicing the private equity industry. Welcome and thank you very much for sharing your insight today, Todd. Thanks for having me. So as usual, Todd, if you could kick us off by giving us a 60 to 90 second breakdown of you, please. Certainly. Uh, Sipperman Compliance Services is a bit unique. We are actually a total outsourcing chief compliance officer service for uh, U.S. registered private equity firms, that is registered investment advisors. So one of our team will serve as your chief compliance officer, and we basically do the entire compliance program for you, testing, SEC exam, marketing review, et cetera. We have about 25 people. Uh, we're based just outside of Philadelphia in the States, and uh, we've been doing this for almost 20 years. Uh, my personal background, I started this uh, back in early, really literally late 2003, beginning of 2004. I had been general counsel of a fund firm. Uh, I started this business back then, and we have grown since. I'm a lawyer by training, and uh, before working as a general counsel of a fund firm, I was in private practice at a couple of big Wall Street law firms. So that's that's my background, and uh, you know, I would say a good third of our client base is private equity uh, firms of all kinds, and that's a growing percentage. And I think the reason behind that, Alex, is you know, in the classic sense, private equity firms want to focus on the things they do best, which is raise money and run money. You know, they're not particularly uh, focused on the operational compliance side of the business, and we're experts in that, and they hire us to do that for them. So that gives you a little bit of a background who we are. No, it makes sense. And obviously, private equity firms typically are quite lean um, from a people perspective, so I understand that. And, you know, compliance certainly isn't my favorite subject, so thankfully, there's businesses like yourself to help uh, Perhaps people like me. after this. After this podcast, you may change your mind. <laughs> let's, uh, let's hope so. That might be quite a big one to turn. Uh, I have to say, Todd, you've given yourself a hell of a challenge. So what one mistake do you see You know, private equity firms or their portfolio companies making, and what action would you suggest to correct them? Yeah, I think the, the, the biggest mistake they, they, they make is with respect to uh, compliance and regulation is they, th- they think they can intuitively do it themselves. That it's somehow, you know, if they're good people, they can figure it out. How hard could it possibly be? And the reality is it's not hard, but it's a discipline like any other. And there's a lot of rules. Uh, I'm going to also say that the Investment Advisors Act, is, which is what applies to the United States, it is quite dense. It's quite complicated. There's a lot of rules and, and statements. And intuition alone won't get you there. You have to actually know what you're doing. And there's a whole uh, a profession of compliance people. So trying to think you can figure it out yourself is really a mistake. And one of the practices the SEC has really frowned upon is this idea of what they call here in the States, they call it dual hatting, where someone is, say, a, a C-suite executive of some kind, chief marketing officer, chief financial officer, and then they just throw in the second hat of the chief compliance officer thinking they can figure it out. Well, you know, I, I don't know why they think they can figure that out any more than I can figure out how to run a portfolio company, right? It's, it's, it's a expertise like any other. And those are the firms that get in trouble. So I, I would think if there's one thing I would like to tell uh, uh, your listeners is that you know, hire a professional, whether it be a firm like ours, an in-house person, another consulting firm, um, 
but it's it's an area of law that requires a lot of experience and knowledge and you'll get it wrong get in trouble and and, and and the consequences can be severe okay no definitely uh, i think with anything it's uh, if you're not fully coherent with it but like all of the filings and end of year stuff that we have to do as a business, I outsource all of that and I don't need any uh, any of the hassle. I do what I do and, uh, and focus on that as private equity guys uh, should, uh, should do the same with deals and investor relations and whatever else that they, they, they do specifically there. So I know obviously recently, I think it was last month, uh, the SEC kind of examinations division obviously released its most recent report, and obviously as part of your role, no doubt you've studied it and read it, as, as obviously I will not obtain to have done. What are your concerns in specifics to you know what was included in that report, but also the kind of standing from an SEC perspective on private equity? Yeah, I, I, I view these risks, they're called risk alerts that they put out, and I view them like the Rosetta Stone. The words matter, but their meaning also matters. And, and so let, let's talk a little bit about it. I mean, the SEC loves these risk alerts, and particularly they've lo- they, they've really done a lot in the private fund space. This is basically the output of hundreds of exams they had done over the last five years, and they basically are reporting on everything they're seeing there, and they're seeing a ton of compliance problems and everything from disclosure, conflicts of interest, marketing practices, due diligence failures, fee issues, valuation, lack of consent. It goes on and on and on. But and then they, they make it very clear that this was a companion, what they call risk alert, to their a risk alert they put out in June 2020, which had a whole nother series of alleged compliance breakdowns. Basically, what they're saying is, listen, private equity firms, uh, you're not doing a very good job of compliance. And the, the predicate for this is we're giving you a heads up. We're coming in now. Now we've told you what the problems are when we do our examinations, which you're going to get examined periodically uh, by the SEC. We're going to be looking for these issues. And then if you're still not doing it properly, we're going to bring enforcement cases against you. So it, it's, it's a, and this is these two risk alerts, in addition to speeches, public statements, letters to the industry, and also all the enforcement cases that have been brought in the private equity uh, industry. It's clearly a focus for the SEC and a huge focus for this particular SEC uh, run by new chairman, Gary uh, Gensler. So if we look at those those issues what what is it that the secs what areas of compliance are they actually going after as they yeah. kind of risk alerts what are the you know the bits that private equity guys need to be aware of and, and focused on yeah I, if i had to sum it up it, they basically hit everything I, honestly alex it's 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 dizzying the number of topics they hit we do compliance programs for for a hundred plus clients just putting kind of we do this for a long time so i mean our compliance manuals cover, let's say, 25 topic matters. You know, that's those are the chapters the compliance matter. It, it feels like the SEC touched on every one of them. So it, it it's not really as much a priorities as much as a laundry list. But a couple of big areas to sort of, if I had to sort of come back 50,000 feet, conflicts of interest, fees, disclosure. So conflicts of interest, and this is, this is really where it all begins because when private equity firms had to register uh, as investment advisors starting in 2012, it changed the standard of care. And without getting too inside baseball, before Dodd-Frank in, in 2012, the standard of care was materiality. You just had to disclose all material facts. Most people know that. But once you're a registered investment advisor, you're now a fiduciary, which means you have to put your, the client's interest, the investor's interest ahead of your own. 
And that changes literally everything because no longer can you just disclose problems away. So if you benefit and the client doesn't have the same way of benefiting, you know, you, you can be in trouble. And this came in things like co-investing on better terms, allocation of responsibility, allocation of expenses, serving on portfolio company boards and getting paid. If you think about it, any way that the private equity fund manager benefits, but the, the investor maybe not doesn't get hurt, but doesn't can't participate in that same benefit has given rise to all kinds of problems. And this is why we tell our, our, our the, I think the starting point when I talk to private equity firms is, and, and this is an evolution. If you look, look at your, look at where you're getting paid. Look how you're making money. And the reality is to get in line from a compliance perspective, you got to start thinking more like a traditional asset manager, which people hate. Yes, you can take your, your carry. That's fine. But, and you can take your management fee. But when you start taking little bits here and there, um, that's when you get in trouble. The best thing you can do is to take all the fees you want to make and put it into your management fee or your carry. If you have to increase it, increase it. But the, the sort of various ways you get paid or you benefit, another area is shared expenses. Like uh, you negotiate legal bills that you benefit from. That's a conflict of interest, right? It's it's You're only getting that benefit of uh, uh, to the extent because they're doing work for the funds. So this, these are all areas, these conflicts of interest are, are real, uh, is a huge area right now. And I, that, that almost crosses everything. Um, and I, you know, and there's been a ton of cases, uh, Alex, you know, throughout the, uh, just to break it down, this is not just esoteric, you know, over the course of time, you know, one of the big areas that the SEC has really focused on is this idea of accelerated portfolio monitoring fees. When deals are done, they basically hit the, hit the fee, hit the fund and investors with this big charge which accelerates the, the future value of how much they would have charged for portfolio monitoring fees. The SEC in several cases, since big ones, Blackstone, Apollo, TPG, uh, seven, eight figure cases where they basically said, look, you didn't get sufficient approval or you didn't sufficiently notify investors that you were going to make all this pile of money when you accelerated the transactions. Now, in theory, you could disclose your way out of it, but the SEC's cases seem to suggest that this practice is, is dodgy as a fiduciary. Um, expense allocations. Um, there's been a bunch of cases where private equity firms allocated things like really broken deal expenses to investor funds, but not the, not, not the insider co-invest funds, legal expenses, insurance expenses. Again, conflicts of interest. Ways that you, you hit portfolio companies for expenses, in this case, Monomoy, I can't pronounce that properly, where they were charging portfolio companies fees, but you know, not telling investors or not giving them the same benefit of that. And what the SC likes to see is if you're making revenue from portfolio companies, it should offset the management fee. So you shouldn't get, you shouldn't be double dipping. Another big area of conflicts of interest, you charge your management company expenses of the fund, rent, employee expenses. Compliance expenses get charged of the fund. So these kind of conflicts of interest, these are real cases, by the way, and there's a bunch of cases, Potomac Asset Management, Alpha Titans, a whole bunch of cases in that area. So the SEC has raised these issues, and it's a real cultural shift, Alex, because it's just not how private equity guys think, right? They're deal people. They focus on the PPM and getting the deal done. They're not thinking about their fiduciary obligations uh, as a fund manager. And I suppose there's always a feeling of, Okay, well, they'll come after the big boys, or they'll, you know, Warburg will be knocking on the door first. 
how real is this? And I suppose if we look at previous reports, um, for so the last kind of big risk alert uh, kind of report that came out, is that are we getting more aggressive from an SEC kind of we're coming for you now as opposed to the one before was, or have they always been we're coming for you and there's nothing's ever changed? Yeah, just to kind of give people a bit of perspective over, you know, how real real is this? I suppose if somebody's sitting, ah, oh, yeah, they won't do anything. They're always they're always threatening. Is is are we seeing a gradual increase in? No, I'm citing real cases. These are there's been oh, okay. dozens, if if not hundreds, of cases against private equity firms, and and I mentioned some of the big name ones. But the reality is, the SEC generally, and I don't work there and never have worked there, but my experience is. They don't necessarily like to go after the big guys first because the big guys will fight them, right? That's a harder case to make. It is much easier for them to roll a small firm because they can get a point of law across, a message across, without it rippling across the industry. So generally speaking, these cases, like I mentioned, Apollo, Blackstone, KKR, I mean, those are big marquee cases which send chills throughout the entire industry. But the reality is most of the cases in the private equity space are firms that have less than $2 billion in assets. And it's because they're easy marks for the SEC. So yes, and and the likelihood of, of a problem is, is actually quite high. Uh, it, it's The SEC makes their, 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 their world by their, their enforcement statistics. They want to bring a lot of cases. They want to collect a lot of money. And... Uh, uh, the the uh, a case against uh, Alex and Todd's pr- private equity firm is a case. The case against KKR is a case. So that you know, bringing cases and uh, a large number of cases is significant, and and that shows in the enforcement actions they brought. It's, it's been dozens, mostly against the smaller guys. So it's very real. And uh, the problem is, even if the fine, even if the restitution is not seven eight figures, which it might not be for small, the issue is these enforcement cases live on the internet forever. And I don't have to tell you that, you know, generally when you're pitching for institutional assets, you're up against competitors. That's the reality. And they will whip that stuff out every chance they can get. Oh, you know what? Alex and Todd's firm is, uh, is pitching. Did you know they had an enforcement case last year where they were, they were accused of conflicts of interest. That is not something you want to be arguing against. That, that is a that is something that you have to live with the rest of your your uh, your, your business career. So I, I think I think it is very real, and I, I always I always liken it to you know the classic uh, the smoker's dilemma. You know, no, everyone knows it's bad for you; they just assume it's, the, it's never going to be them. But that's sort of the case with this. I can't tell you how many people have called me after their enforcement case and said, "Oh, oh, geez, this is really bad. I can't believe this happened." And I always say, well, why do you believe this wasn't going to happen to you? And it's it's not that they don't really believe that because these are numbers-based people. It's a state of denial. Is really what it boils down to. They're, they're, they're hoping they're not they're not planning. Hoping it's not going to happen. Makes sense. Makes sense. And then another thing that's there's a key change has been the kind of form P, um, PF changes. What have you seen from regards to what's changing, what's happening, and what should P investors be aware of? Yeah. People hate form PS. So just for a little primer for your listeners, basically it's a, a document that private equity, it's a disclosure document private equity firms file with the SEC. Large firms have to file a quarterly, smaller firms annually, uh, and they'll the break off about $2 billion in assets. And, and one of the things they want to do is reduce that, that threshold of a billion and a half, which is kind of interesting that markets are up. They want to reduce the threshold, which means you'll have more private equity from supporting. And it's basically a bunch of data about the funds themselves. And it's 
I'll just, I'll technically call it a real pain in the neck. It's just a lot of data you got to pull and file. So what the SEC did, they, they proposed, this is a proposal now, recent change to form PF for, in addition to reducing the threshold for what is a large filer, they want essentially immediate reporting of certain events. Think of it like an 8K, if you will, for private equity funds. So they included things like advisor-led secondaries, GPLP clawbacks, uh, GP removal, fund terminations, fund extensions. So certain significant events you'd have to uh, uh, report immediately, which is difficult because for any compliance person that's dealt with suspicious activity reporting, we have to report it immediately. It's always this question, what is immediately? When do you know the information? What information do you have to report? But it really makes uh, raises the bar for private equity firms and their compliance obligations. So I, it's, it's difficult. I, I think one of the questions that I have, the uh, risk alert, the second risk alert came out very soon after the form PF changes. And then uh, the Gensler SEC has also questioned the accredited investor definition, pulling back on that. The Clayton SEC, for those who are into it, you know, they sort of broadened what an accredited investor was. Now Gensler saying you know, they pull that back. I don't know what the end game here is really for the SEC. It, it seems like they're they're trying to say they they apparently don't love the private funds industry or they want to regulate it more. You could talk big policy and say, look, so much of capital has moved from the public markets here in the United States to the private markets. Some say because of overregulation. That may be, there's lots of other reasons. But clearly the SEC sees this pile of capital as something that they need to focus on where they didn't, you know, 10, 15 years ago, or next 15 years ago. So when you when you start adding all this reporting and all this compliance, the regulatory distinction between a publicly registered mutual fund and a privately offered private equity fund starts to diminish. At a certain point, you're like, well, if they want to treat us like registered funds, are they even going to allow us to be privately offered? What does that even mean anymore if I have to do all this compliance? So I think there's clearly a antagonistic regulatory regime here in the States right now. And I think it's been it's been an escalating. I would say certainly the last administration was uh, less aggressive from a policy perspective, but not less aggressive from an enforcement perspective. I would say the enforcement division was every bit as aggressive as the enforcement division on the Obama SEC, as well as, and we're, we're, it's unclear under the current uh, enforcement division because Gerber Graywall, who took over the enforcement division, wasn't until July of last year, so it's still early in his tenure. So I don't know. I, I, I think this idea that regulation is going to go away I, I joke, Alex, when, when, when Dodd-Frank was first passed, I called it the five stages of compliance grief for private equity firms. And the first stage was denial that this wasn't going to happen, that it was going to go away really quickly, that, you know, that this happened before. Well, I think there's some private equity firms that are still in denial and it's, you know, it's 10 years later. Um, you know, it's not going anywhere. It's, it's the other way around. It's becoming more regulated, not less regulated. And I think that's a, a real eye-opener. Sorry to interrupt here, just a quick note to highlight our new sponsor, Grata. The private equity market is rapidly shifting to a data-driven, proprietary deal sourcing standard. Grata provides the window into over 7 million middle market private companies. Contact Grata so you can access the market first. Request a demo at www.grata.com. Now back to the podcast. Makes sense. Makes sense. I think of anything like this is worth getting on top of. The, I'm sure the fear of uh, having that experience and, and wondering, rather than at least if you're on top of things, if something does come a knocking, you've got uh, you've got your ducks in a row, uh, best you possibly can, I suppose. Yeah, and I think I think instead of all this fear and loathing, which I know people hate, 
the reality is, we started this, this is not rocket science. I said, it's a, it really, what it boils down to is a cost of doing business. What the SEC has done is increase your cost of doing business. You have to hire compliance professionals to handle it. And they exist. There's, you know, there's, I know you're in the UK, there's compliance professionals in the UK that are excellent. There's, there's folks like me in the States and I'm, we're great. We're the best firm in the United States, but there are other really good firms. <laughs> you said hyperbolically and there are other great firms. You know, you just got to realize it's like hiring lawyers. It's it's not fun. You don't want to do it, but it, it's, it becomes a cost of doing business and they're available and they can make sure that it, you can stay within the regulatory bounds without significantly impacting the business you want to run. It's not it's it's not an undo. It's not an un, undoable task. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you mentioned, obviously, your your firm and you've obviously grown. I think you said you're about 25, uh, uh, 25 people now. As you've grown your business, what are the kind of three attributes that you believe make a uh, make a top performer, Todd? The firm or our people? In your people, yeah. What, what do you think? Well, as you look at top performers in your business, what are the three attributes yeah. that you believe make a top performer? The, the three things I like to talk about are intelligence, enthusiasm, and experience. When we look for people, those are the three things that we focus on. So well, let's start with intelligence. It may seem the most obvious, but and there's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of material you have to know, and and there's a lot of connections you have to make. And you know, my experience is, you know, you you, you can't teach people to be smart. <laughs> you know, they, they that is a basic skill, and we deal with intellectual concepts. And and I don't mean they need to be the best educated. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, intelligence comes in many forms, but I think you have to be somewhat sharp to do this kind of job. No one wants, we're not lawyers or compliance people, but you don't, you're kind of hope your lawyers are smart. Well, I think you want your compliance people to be smart. So a certain level of intelligence, and that goes with the knowledge base you have. And that kind of leads to my second point, which is enthusiasm. At a certain point, you don't, you don't know everything. And you have to be enthusiastic enough about what you do to learn the stuff, learn people's business, be interested in it. Because it's it's too hard a practice thing to to go through the motions without having the the fire to to learn more and have that 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 sort of intellectual curiosity I call enthusiasm to sort of keep learning, keep growing, keep getting better, be humble about your knowledge. That's really important to me. I like to see people that are are really enthusiastic, and I don't mean that doesn't mean I want you know you live for your work. It just means you know. You want to figure out problems. You like to understand people's business. And I think experience is really important. We generally only hire people with a lot of industry experience. And that that's primarily because it's one thing to know the law, but it's a lot more complicated to actually apply it in a real world situation with people that may be less than eager to, to be bound by procedures. And that requires a degree of experience, not just in terms of how to do it, substantially, but how to do it practically with people. Now, I'll give you a great example, Alex. One of the things we have to do, you have to create fair valuation procedures. All private equity firms, they invest in non-trade securities, right? So you have to value that according to SC rules. It's a process. Everyone knows, every compliance consultant knows that you have to have valuation procedures. You're probably drafting valuation procedures. But how you implement those at a, at a firm is more complicated. How much is the portfolio manager going to do? How much is management going to do? How much independence is there going to be? Is it going to be checked? And only people that have done that before now know how to make that happen. 
So I would say in terms of, of success factors, intelligence, enthusiasm, experience. And after that, I can, I can figure out the rest, which is why our people don't necessarily have the same background. So yes, we hire mostly mid-career people that have been in asset management firms. That is a consistent theme. But some have our compliance people, some are former auditors, some are former internal auditors. We have operations people. We have uh, client service people that have, have been retooled. I can sort of teach you the basics of how to implement a compliance program, but I want you to know the business. I want you to be willing to learn more. And obviously, hopefully you're smart when you come in. That, those, are the, those are the things that I think work. Makes sense. Makes sense. And I like your uh, clear approach there. And obviously quite a diverse uh, uh, team in there as well. We're looking for those kind of three areas. So what what do you love about the private equity industry, Todd? Been, you know, looking outside in, supplying like we do into the industry. And also, what do you dislike about it? I'll tell you what I like about it is that there is no such thing as a private equity industry. And that's what I find really fascinating. Every business is different. So you know, we've had marketing who say, well, why don't you just go to the private equity conference and meet all the people? Because like, there is no such thing. You know, there's there's Mez, Mez firms and there's Mezdet firms and there's oil and gas and there's real estate and there's private credit and there's right, a venture. I don't know. They're all different. And I think they view themselves as in those industries. And yeah. I find that fascinating. And, and, and also on top of that, the investment business in itself is a people business. I don't have to tell you. And even if they're in the same business, even if I see two firms in the, I don't know, the oil and gas space, which you think is fairly narrow, they're going to be radically different because they're made up of different group of people. And I find I am learning about the business, learning about those people, learning about how they make money. And they tend to be very, very intelligent people. I enjoy that immensely. I think I've been doing this now almost 30 years in one form or another. And that is what I, what gets me up in the morning. I love learning about people and how they make money and, and their businesses. And, and private equity is so radically different business to business. Yeah. I just love that. I, I really, I really, really enjoy that. What I don't like about it, I, I think it's not an I don't like. The challenge I would say is what we talked about up front is, you know, Compliance and regulation are really baked into the model for sort of traditional asset managers, institutions, mutual fund companies. I don't really have to convince them that they need compliance. They're already there. It's just a question of how they execute against that. Sometimes when I talk to particularly smaller private equity firms that just get registered, having to convince them that they actually need compliance is, is can, can be frustrating. It's, it's like, I, I joke that it's like, uh, I'm a, if I'm selling cars, and someone walks in, I'm selling BMWs, and someone walks in my, my shop and says, tell me why you need a, why I need a car. I don't really have anything to say to them, right? I can tell them why the BMW is a better car, but it's very hard for me to say why a car is better than a bicycle. And sometimes I feel that way. That I don't think PE is there yet. I think it's come a long way. It's only been 10 years. But I think that is always a challenge for compliance, regulatory, or operational people generally, because private equity firms have not focused on infrastructure, not the smaller ones. It's been deal by deal by deal. And I think they have to, the mindset needs to switch, and it is switching gradually. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. I agree with you to an extent with, the, with regards to that. So obviously well-read on a compliance world, or at least I'd hope so, Todd. Probably not the right person to measure that. But where do you get your influences from? Where do you, what do you read? What do you watch? What do you listen to? I am a consumer of media. So I, I, I read a lot. Well, first and foremost, as you may know, I, I read a daily blog on compliance issues. 
And to do that blog, I read a ton of regulatory information so other people don't have to. Uh, I read everything on the SEC website, the FINRA website, so the other regulators, uh, the state regulators. So I, that's, I do that every morning. In addition to that, I read the major newspapers. I read the journal, New York Times every day. And then I also actually tend to read things like Yahoo News because I always like to think, well, what are, what are, what is everybody else reading? You know, is it not everyone reads the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal? So, you know, what, 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 what's going on out there? That's the, the business reading I do for, for pleasure reading. I read everything from, I, I, I do like to read nonfiction and I do read fiction as well. I, I, I love biography. Uh, I, and I, I, I also like reading, uh, politics and government and history. Because I think that gives me tremendous perspective on what's going on. I don't think anything, and I think we make this mistake sometimes, is happening just now. And I don't think history is in blocks of time. I think everything is connected. And uh, I enjoy that kind of history to understand how those connections are made. And then my, my TV watching is mostly sports and, uh, and whatever both my wife and I agree on. Um, so <laughs> it can be very complicated. Um, uh, so yes, uh, we, we, uh, I, 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 I love, but I, I find all that I have a, well, I have a college, two college age daughters, one who is a, an English major, and she's always recommending new books that can expand my horizons, which is fantastic. And I have another one who's an applied math economics major. So she views the world very differently. So they're a learning experience as well. So I like to take in all that media and, uh, and I, and it's great. I think, um, all of it plays off of each other. And I, I, I'm, uh, you know, I like to think that I'm a, I'm a learner and, 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 and uh, in that sense. So I, I try to bring it all in. We get more specific, but that, that, that's sort of what I do. I start with the, the news and I move from there. It sounds like there's a lot of, uh, lots of uh, different mediums coming into, uh, uh, into your life there, Todd. Oh, one last thing. I love podcasts, actually, because okay. as, okay. as I've gotten older, I can't run. I used to run a lot. Now I, I'm a walker. And when you're running, especially during the pandemic, when you're walking for two hours at a time, you got to do something. So I, I listen to a lot of a uh, lot of podcasts, and they, I focus on basically business, history, politics, uh, those kind of things. And, uh, I, it's and amazing who we can get access to. I like to be like nowadays, but you know, to be able to listen to an Elon Musk, uh, you know, to to name somebody particularly famous, a Jeff Bezos, or listening to a leading private equity executive whatever it would be, you got that opportunity to really listen to their insight and learn about their story and, and usually changes your perception on them as well. Um, even Absolutely. famous people, um, you know, you never, you don't think about, I listened to something recently about comedians and you don't think about the journey they have to go on and as a, as a, to grow, to get to where they are. And I think it's interesting across the board to. No, to I, I think that's, story. I think it's actually right. I mean, uh, I'll give you an example. I listen to a podcast called pivot, which famous uh, Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway, two famous people. I don't really know a lot about the tech industry, but you know they go deeper on tech than than newspapers do, and I've learned a lot from them. I don't always agree with either one of them necessarily, but I, but from the, I've just it's a way for me to learn that industry in a in a in a very uh, digestible format. It's a great example, and same thing with a lot of history and politics. And it's it's uh, I don't have time to read all that, but when I'm walking in a pot, when I'm walking around around, I can read that. Yeah, it's easy listening as well. It's more conversational rather than what regard as heavy structured. Uh, to have those conversations um so perfect so if anybody wants to to reach out to you todd and and uh, wants to drop a note how best do they contact you please yeah so the good news is there's not a lot of sippermans in the world so it's it's c-i-p-p-e-r-m-a-n do a google search my name is todd 
and you'll come up with Cipran Compliance Services and Todd Cipperman if you spell it right. And we'd love to talk to anyone who's, who uh, wants some advice on uh, regulatory help. Very fortunate there. There's a very famous Alex Rawlings who uh, speaks multiple languages, and unfortunately, that person is not me. And trying to get him on uh, him on Google is quite a challenge. So, uh, uh, although there is only one raw selection to my knowledge, so uh, at least that uh, uh, does help. So, at least you've got one uh, one thing there. So, Todd, thank you very much for joining us today. I really appreciate your insight. Uh, you know, what a lot of people probably constitute a bit of a dry subject, but definitely an area which would cause a lot of pain um, when uh, the SEC or any regulation banging on your door so good lesson um, for us all to kind of look at how we're managing compliance and and if if we're not happy to deal with it ourselves to certainly uh, certainly outsource it so thank you very much for for sharing that with us today thanks for having me and of course for everyone listening thank you very much uh, for joining us today should you ever need support with either private equity professionals or of course your portfolio executive hires please do reach out to me at Raw Selection but till the next time keep smashing it and thank you very much for listening Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Podcast on www.raw-selection.com.